Let's open our Bibles this morning to Second uh, Samuel. We're in chapter 20. Let's look at that chapter as we continue our verse-by-verse studies uh, through the life of David. Second Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 26. The topic we'll find there, among other things, Joab disembowels Amasa and leaves him wallowing in his own blood with his entrails poured out on the ground. Title of our message, Happy Entrails to You. (laughs) Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we appreciate so much that you speak to us, that you've revealed yourself to us, not just in creation, not just in our conscience, as wonderful as that is, but through your word, and then through your Son, Jesus Christ, who we learn about in your word, and then by your Spirit, Lord, who comes and teaches us. And so I pray that as we look at this, in some ways, very brutal and odd passage of Scripture, we would uh, be drawn, Lord, to some teaching about how we are to live and how we can have a great victory in faith. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, has been rating movies since about 1968. In 1990, the rating board began adding brief explanations of why a particular film receives its rating. Usually these explanations are generic and are overlooked by moviegoers, but once in a while, the language used can be more entertaining than the movie itself. Here are some examples. Rated R for zombie violence, gore, and language. That's something that you're going to want to put on your list. Rated R for demented mayhem and torture. Rated R for grisly afterviews of horrific and bizarre killings. These are real, by the way. Rated R for an abundance of outrageous gore. And then my favorite, rated R for graphic violence, including scenes of dental torture. That was filmed in my dentist's office. But anyway... Our text in 2 Samuel would certainly carry an R rating, and the explanation would most likely read, rated R for disembowelment, wallowing in blood, and beheading. So that's what we're looking forward to this morning. It's an R-rated Bible study. It's a violent episode in which David deals decisively with a rebel, an Israelite named Sheba, by sending his elite troops to put him to death. What can we glean from the story devotionally? We who are believers in Jesus Christ are commanded to put something to death, to kill something. We're told in very graphic language to kill sin, to put it to death. One passage in which we find this is Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. I'll read it to you. It says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. And then it lists some of the sins, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You're encouraged to kill sin too in Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Commenting on all this, one Bible teacher said, and I quote, There's a mean streak in the Christian life. There's a violence. There's a militancy. It's a violence against the flesh or against the deeds of the body, our own flesh and our own body. The flesh is what we are when rebellion against God and insubordination and hostility to God 
rule our bodies and our minds. So the way you put to death the deeds of the body is to strangle the air that sinful deeds breathe, strangle the flesh, cut the lifeline, pinch the air pipe, stop the blood flow. Sinful deeds must be killed before they happen. The brutal story here in 2 Samuel chapter 20 gives us an opportunity to discuss how we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can put to death and kill sin. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, are you experiencing setbacks in killing sin? Or number two, are you expecting success in killing sin? Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 1 through 13 about setbacks. Now, the ten tribes of Israel were offended when the men of Judea took a prominent role in returning David to his throne after the conflict with Absalom had ended. One man determined to lead them in a rebellion against the king. And so we pick up the story in verse 1. There happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his own tents, O Israel. Now your Bible might read that he was a son of Belial instead of a rebel. According to the Holman Bible Dictionary, the King James Version interprets it as a proper name 16 times, but modern translations translate it as a common noun, worthless or wicked. In Nahum 1.15, Belial appears to be the name of some specific malevolent power. In the New Testament, the word occurs one time in 2 Corinthians 6.15. There, Paul the Apostle declared the mutual irreconcilability of Christ and Belial, who thus appears to be equivalent to Satan. Now, we trace sin back to the Garden of Eden where Satan tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God's authority and act independently. The, he was the first rebel and he led the first rebellion. And so you might therefore say, as a, uh, in summary, that any time we sin, we too are the sons of Belial. We are acting according to uh, what the devil would have us do. Sheba summarized the feelings of the Israelites by saying they had no share in David and no inheritance. They were upset about how they were being treated, that would be their share, and about their prospects for the future, that would be their inheritance. Discouragement with your share as you journey home to heaven is always a breeding ground for sin. Uh, when you start to focus on your situation, on your share, on what you're going through, and you start to feel sorry for yourself and think that it's unfair and undeserved and those kinds of things, and uh, that's when we uh, really give uh, ground for sin to express itself. And so is focusing on the here and now rather than on your future inheritance awaiting you safe in heaven. Uh, I, I don't think we can be reminded too often that we are a future-oriented people. We are to live for the future. Previous generations, it seems, and this is just a, you know, my kind of armchair view of history, but it would seem that in our own nation, previous generations had more of a sense that they were living for the future in the sense of the legacy that they would leave behind. And there was a lot of sacrifice and willingness to lay down your life and those kinds of things. Uh, it would seem that uh, as time goes on, people are becoming more selfish and not thinking so much about the future as they are the here and now. Every man to his tents was Sheba's rallying cry. It was a declaration of independence. Be your own king. 
Rule in your own tent. Who needs David? We can pitch tents in our Christian life. We might, for example, return to a habit or a behavior that Jesus delivered us from. Uh, it seems nothing is more common in the Christian realm uh, you know, over the years than uh, we, you, know, you see people in our own lives even. Uh, they've been delivered from some, something that, you know, that they were thankful to be delivered from. And then years later, they see it creep back into their lives. Uh, and not so much creep, they invite it back into their lives. And they say, well, I, I couldn't handle this at the time. You know, I had to get away from that, whatever it would be. I don't want to mention things because I'd only be mentioning your vices and not mine. Uh, but, you know, I, I had to get away from this stuff. You know, I first got saved and I, I burned all that and I threw all that away. But, you know, I've been walking with the Lord for a while and some of that was pretty good. Some of it was okay. So let me just re-add that to my life and uh, I'll just pitch a tent there where I can enjoy those things that Christ died for and set me free from. Um, certain character traits... I found can be tense that we pitch if we say of ourselves, that's just the way I am. Ever? Don't say that anymore. You ever say that, you know, when you're in an argument or, you know, somebody points something and you say, well, that's just the way I am. Yeah, that's the problem. That's exactly the problem. You say it as a defense, but it's an admission of guilt. You know, yeah, that, that's the way you are. How about you do something about that? Jesus died to do something about the way you are. He wants you to he wants to make you the way he is. Uh, And so there's lots of different ways, if you meditate on it, that we can pitch tents along the way in our walk with the Lord and declare a little area of independence. Verse two. So every man of Israel deserted David. They followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan, as far as Jerusalem, they remained loyal to their king. As Israelites, they were expected to fall under the authority of their king. Their decision to rebel was therefore a desertion. Christians have been redeemed at great price. We've been bought out of slavery to sin by the blood Jesus shed on the cross at Calvary. And so we are expected to fall, to bow under the authority of our King and Savior at all times. Any decision to rebel, however slight, would be a desertion. And so verse 3, now David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house... And he put them in seclusion and supported them, but he did not go in to them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. If you've been here for this whole time through David or even recently, or if you're familiar with the story, you know that Absalom and his rebellion had gone into these concubines, David left behind, and he sexually assaulted them as a sign to the nation that he was rebelling against his father. Because David had ignored Absalom's rebellion, until it became a full-blown rebellion, uh, many others suffered, starting with these concubines. And we see here that their lives were never the same. Neither were the lives of the 20,000 Israelites uh, who were killed in the ensuing conflict, and of course, the families and friends whom their lives touched. My sin always affects others negatively especially if I allow it to go unchecked. Uh, I think in the, in the life of sin, if you can call it that, when we sin against the Lord, we think that we're only doing it uh, in our own little sphere, that it's not really going to affect anyone else. But if it goes unchecked, it seems to blossom and grow until it spills over into the lives of others and ruins their lives as well, innocent others. 
Uh, and that's certainly what happened. David took care of these concubines, but uh, hey, nobody wants to be sexually assaulted and be shut up as a widow uh, to the day of your death uh, and, and uh, have that disgrace. And so uh, the next time I think about sinning or you think about sinning, we should think about others and the effect that it will have on them. And so verse 4, And the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. Now, David had appointed Amasa to replace Joab as commander of his forces. It was a terrible idea from the start. Uh, It was politically motivated. Uh, Joab had disobeyed David by killing Absalom, and so he had to be disciplined. And so he was demoted effectively by promoting Amasa. But Amasa, a bad idea, he was the one who had led Absalom's forces against David. And as if that wasn't bad enough, he didn't do a very good job of it. He just wasn't a very good commander. His army was completely routed. Verse 5, so Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. Make a mental note that Amasa delayed longer. Then the three days David had determined, we're going to return to it in just a moment. Verse 6, and David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men with the Cherethites, the Pelethites and all the mighty men went out after him. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Let's stop there for a minute. David was stuck on this three-day plan of action. When Amasa wasn't acting, David said, we're going to move on this without him. Amasa heard that the troops were gathering and he met them. And so, verse 8 again. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. Joab had been demoted, but he was always ready for a fight. He was a warrior. Joab is the kind of guy that you wanted on your side in a fight. And then you didn't really want to have dinner with him afterwards. You just, you know, he, your wife wouldn't want you to bring him home. You didn't want to hang out with him. He was just, he, he, he just had one track and one purpose in life, and that was to be a soldier and to kill. Uh, and he did it very well. Uh, he was also, however, a murderer. And he was a very crafty one at that. To put Amasa at ease, Joab used the old, I dropped my sword trick. And so Joab, he's, you have to understand, I don't know if he was a big guy, I like to think of him as a, as a big guy, but you know, he was a fierce warrior in battle armor, he'd been demoted, he wasn't the general anymore, but if there was a fight, he was going to be there. You, you couldn't keep him away from a fight. And so he was there, Amasa wasn't really doing what he was supposed to be doing, but he was the, the, the commander of the army. And so Joab, uh, you know, th- this is going to be kind of a tense meeting. You know, I mean, at, at, at any at, at best, it's going to be tense when Joab and Amasa see each other. And and probably people are thinking Joab's going to kill Amasa. I mean, I can see that coming. And so Joab comes up with this plan. He's walking up and somehow his sword falls out. Which, you know, 
I mean, when's the last time a police officer walked up to your car and his, his gun fell out on the ground? You know, I mean, I mean, it's like a Barney Fife routine, you know. And so here comes Joab and his sword falls out very prominently. And Amasa, he's thinking, okay, well, he doesn't have a sword, so this is just going to be, you know, uh, a meeting. Uh, and so uh, he says to Amasa in verse 9, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, which I'm told is what they did in those days, but uh, another reason to not have a beard. Uh, but anyway, Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. So his sword had fallen out, but he had a sword in his hand. Uh, you know, kind of one of these walk up behind you thing and he grabs him by the beard and he's got his sword and he struck him in the stomach and his entrails poured out on the ground and he did not strike him again. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And so a typical Joab move and uh, Joab is now the general of David's armies again. Uh, I can't say much about his methods, but they are effective. Uh, and so he came up and he just guts Amasa. He, he feigns to be his friend. He thinks his sword is on the ground, comes out with another sword and he just guts him and leaves him there, his entrails pouring out on the ground. And so verse 11, meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. And by the way, Joab's gone. I mean, he's just, hey, this guy's dead. I'm going after uh, Sheba. Uh, I don't care what anybody else does. It says, verse 12, but Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. If you want to have some fun this afternoon, look up the word wallow. It's, it's worse than you think. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. And when he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba in, uh, the son of Bichri. Rated R for disembowelment and wallowing in blood. I can't recommend Joab's methods. I can't even say Joab was a believer. So what, what can we say? Well, let's look at it like this. Joab understood that after three days, he was to put to death the rebellion. That's what David said. He says, you've got three days, and then I want you to kill uh, this rebel. I want you to put down this rebellion. Amasa heard that command from his king, but he delayed. He was out trying to rally additional troops. He had made a mental survey of the, uh, the situation, and he decided that three days wasn't long enough. Now, whenever you read about three days in the Bible, what is it you first think about? Well, I think about the Lord rising from the dead on the third day. If we are looking for insight from this story about killing sin, about putting sin to death in our lives, then we need to look no further than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is by His power that we put sin to death, not by any other means. Amasa was out looking for additional troops. Maybe, too, he was busy trying to come up with a clever strategy to defeat Sheba. At any rate, he ignored the three days in search of what he deemed would be more effective. Meantime, the rebellion continued to grow stronger. Joab heeded the three days and then went full on against Sheba, uh, killing anything that was in his way so that he could destroy the rebel. So here's the thing. If you survey the Christian landscape, 
Most of the suggestions regarding putting sin to death involve some sort of behavior modification. We're encouraged to change our outward behavior and we will thereby gain victory over indwelling sin. There's a great emphasis on personal discipline, on exertion, and on effort. Uh, the, you know, the, those are most of the, most of the Christian self-help books, even by recognized authors. At their core, they are a self-help philosophy of how to work and discipline yourself so that you will defeat indwelling sin. That's not the place to start. Jesus didn't rise from the dead so I could reform my outward behavior by my effort, but in order that I might be transformed from within by His power. One blogger put it like this, he said, Christian growth does not happen first by behaving better, but by believing better. Believing in bigger, deeper ways that Christ has already secured victory for us. I, I like that because I think it's biblical. The passages I referenced earlier about putting sin to death, they first tell us what to believe. We are to believe, we are to know, we are to count, we are to reckon that when Jesus died, we died with Him. And that when He rose from the dead in resurrection power, spiritually speaking, we rose with Him in that same power. We are therefore empowered by the Spirit of God to put sin to death and to kill sin. Or we can look at it like this. You begin the Christian life by believing God for salvation. You are to continue in your Christian walk by that same principle, believing His pro uh, promises, the principle of faith. It isn't that God saved you by grace through faith and then says, now figure out how to do this on your own and I'll come along and help you every now and then. No, He says, by the same power that saved you, I will sanctify you, I will you know, be working in your life. And so though we do change our behavior, though there is an outward change, and though we do become a more disciplined people, we don't kill sin by our own self-effort. We do it by believing who we are in Jesus Christ and what He's done. And so when I approach a situation where I'm tempted or, or uh, you know, I'm drawn away to sin... I can believe that I have risen from the dead with Jesus Christ and I can say no to sin and yes to God, that I can put to death sin in my members, that I don't have to yield my members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but I can yield them to God as instruments of righteousness to be holy. And it's on that ground that then I behave. And, and so uh, it's a kind of a cart before the horse thing. And there's a certain appeal to ourselves in say, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a really disciplined person. It's a, like a modern-day Phariseeism, where I think that I can achieve a standard of righteousness by my own behavior. It's what I believe that's important. Let's see how this plays out in our story, verses 14 through 26. Are you expecting success killing sin? Joab had no other plan than after three days it was time to obey his king and pursue Sheba and put him to death, period. That was all that was on his mind. Verse 14, And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Makkah and all the Berites, uh, Berites, and they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. Now, according to some of the scholars, the he in this verse who went through all the tribes of Israel refers to Sheba gathering men 
uh, to him for his rebellion. Others, like Josephus, the historian, say that it refers to Joab picking up troops as he hotly pursued Sheba. Either way, you get the idea that Joab was focused on killing Sheba after three days. If people wanted to follow him, uh, that was fine, but he was, he was on a mission. He wasn't looking for additional troops, but they joined him seeing his passion. So verse 15, Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah, and they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman cried out from the city, Hear, hear, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. When he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. So she spoke saying, They used to talk in former times saying, They shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Siege warfare was brutal. The besieged would suffer from starvation as their supplies were depleted. Essentially, uh, the invading army would come. All the outlying people who lived in the vicinity and all would come into the walls of the city. uh, And they would be safe there. But depending on the persistence of the army outside... Uh, they wouldn't be able to resupply themselves. And so you read of some remarkable sieges in the Bible in which people started cannibalizing one another and boiling their babies and things like that because you just, you know, you run out of food, you run out of water. uh, And so it's a brutal kind of warfare. And then the besieging army, uh, they, you know, it it could take months or years sometimes in, in bigger conflicts. By the time... You know, they got over the wall or under the wall or through the wall. I mean, they were ready for mayhem and murder and slaughter and there was no mercy shown uh, whatsoever. And so siege warfare, it was effective but awful. A wise woman called for parley and she and Joab came to terms. Verse 20, and Joab answered and said, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That's, that's, by the way, that's just by itself a standalone statement for Joab to say something like that. I know he's answering her saying, and he's basically saying, I don't want to kill everybody, but uh, it's comical because that's all Joab ever did was kill people, uh, whether they deserved it or not. Uh, verse 21, that is not so, but a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. It's a tough lady. Uh, Then the woman, in her wisdom, went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it out to Joab. And then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. Rebellion over. Let's go home. Every man to his tent, but now in proper submission to the authority of the rightful king. And so we see here that Joab waited three days. Then he went after Sheba with the total expectation that he would kill him, that he would put him to death, that he would end the rebellion. I think you get the sense by now, knowing Joab, that this was all out warfare. He was going to either die or kill Sheba. There was no in-between. There was no negotiation. 
He would kill anybody along the way that he had to kill. This was total brutality until his assignment was over. Now, I've suggested that after three days, Jesus rose from the dead. And since we are described as having spiritually risen from the dead with him, we too should expect to put sin to death and end our rebellion. Uh, And so the picture that this text is allowing us to paint this morning in this area of putting sin to death is is a brutal, relentless uh, uh, attack upon sin in which we walk in the victory of the resurrection focused on saying no to sin and yes to God. A while back at our men's morning fellowship, we studied the Sermon on the Mount. Last season, our ladies looked at the Beatitudes in that sermon during Apples of Gold. Here's what I told the guys and gals as kind of a summary of those texts. We are not told to live like this in order to be Christians. We are told that because you are a Christian, you can live like this. Uh, And so when I approach, for example, the Beatitudes uh, there where Jesus is giving kingdom living, we can look at that and think, oh, I, I need to aspire to be like that. I should be more meek and more, uh, you know, have more righteousness and things like that. And, and I understand that. But what Jesus is saying is, because you are a saved individual, this is a description of who you already are, and you need to believe this, and the more you believe it, the more you will act accordingly. It has to do with the internal transformation resulting in an outward change of behavior, not vice versa. It may not seem like much of a difference, but it really makes all the difference in the world in your walk with God. I can put sin to death. I can kill sin because of who I already am in Christ and because of what He has already accomplished on my behalf. I must believe better, bigger, and deeper, and then I expect to put sin to death by His power. I expect to kill sin. Now, we have some unfinished business at the end of chapter 20. Look at verses 23 through 26. Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat... The son of Ahilud was recorder. Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira the Jairite was a chief minister under David, which uh, some suggest seems to be like almost a personal chaplain to him. Now, this is just a historical note in our text about David's second administration cabinet members. For our application, I'd say that we too are called upon to administrate our Christian lives. And we do it every day by the choices that we make. Here's one such choice that sort of puts into perspective everything I've been saying this morning. It's a text in Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. You're probably familiar with it. It reads like this. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And Paul is talking to the Galatians about their principle of life. How are you going to administrate your life as a Christian? Are you going to do it by the works of the law or are you going to do it by the hearing of faith? In the context of the book of Galatians, the 
these Judaizing teachers were coming in behind Paul's teaching and saying, salvation by grace through faith alone is just the beginning. Now you need to keep the Jewish law. Now you need to be circumcised if you're a Gentile and you need to keep the Sabbath and you need to do these other things because only after you convert to Judaism and become a Jew are you really fully saved. And so Paul says, how are you really going to live? And and some of the Galatians were being led astray by that. And so Paul says, let's talk about the basic principle for living the Christian life. Is it by the works of the law that you are going to grow and uh, you know, mature and defeat sin in your life? He says, or is it by the hearing of faith? And then in Galatians, he compares it to the same way that we were saved. He said, when you got saved, did you clean up your life? Did you do certain works of righteousness that were commendable to God and then God saved you? Or did you simply believe God and then God saved you. And of course, it's the latter. I can try to live out the Christian life, including putting sin to death, by the works of the law. I can try to do it by behavior modification, by self-discipline, by the latest method or program being promoted in some book. In other words, I can try really, really hard to reform, thinking that God helps those who help themselves. And I think if there's a sub-point this morning, it's that in my life and in our lives as Christians, I think we fail in putting sin to death because we are all about some outward form of righteousness where we think, I just need more self-discipline. I don't have enough discipline in this area. And, and I need to work harder at doing this. And oftentimes, we need to believe deeper. I need to look at a situation and say, wow, if I am risen from the dead with Jesus Christ, that resurrection power that, that caused Jesus to rise from the dead, if that's really available to me, if that is what the Spirit can produce in my heart, I can beat this thing. I, I in fact, already have. I, I just need to implement what I already am. I can do it God's way by the hearing of faith. I can hear what he says in his word about me and then believe it, have faith, and then walk in it because he rose from the dead and because he did, I do. And it's not even a matter of having great faith or more faith or anything like that. It's not the faith. The faith isn't even a work. It's just I need to believe what God says about me, that I'm risen from the dead with Jesus Christ, seated in heavenly places with the Lord. If you're risen from the dead and seated in heaven, you're going to walk in victory over sin. Now, realistically, the Apostle John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. We know that we still have the flesh to contend with. There is a warfare going on. I understand that. But the idea here is that the victory is won by realizing who you are and that the victory is won. And this is why we fail so often is because we're trying to in our own effort, defeat sin. When God says it's defeated, you just don't believe what I'm telling you. You don't, need to more, you don't need more faith for it. If you're saved, you had enough faith to get saved, right? God says you just need to believe what I'm telling you because His Word carries with it His enabling. Here's a more direct correlation to our story in 2 Kings. 
The Bible says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, right? Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. When I simply hear and believe the Word of God, the hearing of faith, the Spirit takes up that sword and it kills sin in my life. It puts it to death. I activate the sword of the Spirit when I believe God and take Him at face value and believe that I can say no to this situation right now and say yes to Him. My behavior will change. I will become more disciplined. But that's not, that is never where I begin. I always begin with what I believe by the hearing of faith. Because you are a Christian, you can live like this. You can put sin to death. Amen? Let's pray.